You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. We've been in John chapter 15 for a month now, and we're wrapping it up today. And the passage in John 15 that we'll read today has been controversial for the past 200 years. Um, I call it powerful and beautiful, but I had you at controversial. So let's go to John 15 together, and let's go to verse 12. John chapter 15, verse 12. Hope you have your copy of God's Word today. As we read this portion, I would, I would even plead with you not to close your Bible or to, to turn off your, your phone or to, to, to put your phone down, whatever device you might be using today. But I pray that God's living, active flawless word is before you today as we see what Jesus has to say to us. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that they lay his life down, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. So that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Go back to verse 12. Verse 12 says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Highland, this is crystal clear. It's an imperative from the Lord, sisters and brothers, that we love one another. It's not a divine suggestion. It's a divine command from God, from Christ himself. These are our marching orders. And in what way, in what manner then are we to love one another? Verse 12, just as Christ has loved us. It's a tall order. Well, what does that look like? Well, first, the, the love that Jesus speaks of here is practical, not emotional. He's not asking us to have good feelings toward one another, but to love one another with action. When this John 15 evening of of teaching began, Jesus initiated it with love that was put into action. Practical love, not emotional love. In fact, he did that by the washing of the feet of his disciples. Go back one page, if you don't mind, just to John 13. It'll be on the screen also if it's too much energy for you to expend to go back one page. We go back just one page to John 13 and look at verse 3 with me. Now, this is the beginning, almost, if you will, of, of John 15. This is the, the, it's called the, the, the upper room discourse. And so here is Christ and his, and his disciples, and they're in the upper room. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You see, it wasn't some ethereal, mushy feeling of a love that Christ had for his disciples. It was an act of love. 
It, it was practical love. It was, it was love as a verb, not love as a noun. Secondly, we are called to echo them the nature of Christ's love. So if we're to love one another just as Christ has loved us, first of all, it's not some emotional feeling we have for one another. It is a practiced love toward one another. But secondly, it is an echo of the very nature of Christ's love for us. What, what is the nature of Christ's love? It's, it's, it's very humble, which isn't a very high-scoring word in our culture today, humility. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that Christ has for us, therefore we should have for others a love without condition, a love that is patient, a love that is joyful. It's a pursuing love. I mean, how does Jesus love us? How is his love practiced? How is his love expressed? Look at verse 13. We read it just a few moments ago. Verse 13 of chapter 15. Greater love has no one than this. That someone lay down his life for his friends. I've just got to say this again. It's the greatest act of love in all of history that the Lord gave up his life for us. And when it says right there, no greater love, take that for exactly what Christ is saying. It means that you can give up today looking for a love that equals or supersedes the love of Jesus. Stop wasting your time looking for this type of love in a relationship or in a bottle or in status or in partners, or in power, or in prestige. Truly, the greatest love you will ever know is the love that comes from Jesus, the Son of God who voluntarily laid down his life for you. Mark my words, the world will not offer a love like this. Verse 14 and verse 15. You are my friends. If you do what I command you, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is mysterious, but also this is good news. We don't experience the Lord Jesus through a lens of fear. We experience the Lord Jesus through a lens of love. And it's a great tension. We talked about this tension last week. It's a great place to live in. So just, just catch this tension. Jesus is Lord and you are his friends. Man, live right there. He's the Lord of the universe. He's the Lord of your life. He's the Lord over all of his own creation. And would you believe this same Lord says, and I call you a friend. But live in the tension. If he was solely your friend... We wouldn't allow him to come and get up next to our sin tendencies and to speak into them. In fact, if you have a God that never speaks about your sin tendencies, that's not a God, that's a mirror. And you've just made a God in your own image, your own fashion. If he was solely an aloof, non-relational master, we would never know him as a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Listen, Jesus has the right to be the Lord and the Lord only. And the Lord over all of his own creation. But compelled by his love for you and his care for you. He also calls you. Don't miss this. Friend. That is a savior worth knowing. That's a savior worth following. That is a savior worth worshiping. That is a savior worth living for every day. Do you see it in verse 14? We are his servants. We, we do his bidding. We obey him for he is the Lord. But he has literally given us access into the secrets of God's heart. Verse 15. The things that are hidden from intellectual pagans are revealed to us because we are the friends of Jesus. 
a Christian with the lowest IQ on the planet, I may be in the running for this, has more wisdom than a non-Christian PhD because a Christian has access, do you see this, to the secrets of God's heart. Just let that sink in for a moment. All that the Father has told the Son, the Son has revealed to us because we are his friends. Verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or it should last, your Bible might say, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You did not choose me, Jesus says. I chose you. In other words, God, through Christ, initiates relationship with us. God, through Christ, chose us for his family. Maybe a better way to put this is this. He loved you before you loved him. And I know theologians debate about this all day long, but this seems so clear to me. Jesus chooses and we respond by faith. You can write this down somewhere. Jesus begins the reach. Jesus begins the relationship. To be chosen before you yourself choose is the ultimate privilege. If you've ever played third grade kickball, you know this to be true. To be chosen by another is honoring. To be chosen is the highest expression of love. To be chosen means that you're valued, you're esteemed, you're regarded as important. But to be chosen by God, that he would even know us is a little overwhelming. That he would choose us? This is the pinnacle expression of his immeasurable love. But for some reason, this has become controversial in, in the church. For God to choose his people should not be upsetting to you. Why? Because he's God. And, and he's free to, to choose. He has free will, just like we have free will to reject his grace. But if you receive his grace, he chose you first. Martha, are we in one of them Calvinistic churches? No one should be clenching their glutes right now. This isn't Calvinism versus Arminianism. This is the greatness of God and the greatness of our salvation. This is not some cold doctrine. This is a fiery love that Jesus has for you, that he loved you before you loved him. Don't sweat this. Weep. Jesus chose you, sister. Jesus chose you, brother. So we have this simple, unambiguous, negative statement here in verse 16. You did not choose me. Followed by a simple, unambiguous, positive statement. Verse 16, I chose you. I don't know about you. That leaves no room for confusion to me at all. I'm sure the disciples were saying, wait, you, you didn't choose us. We chose you. Remember Jesus? We, we dropped our nets and, and we followed you. It's almost like Jesus leans in right here in verse 16 and goes, Psst, let me tell you a secret. I actually chose you. You did not choose me. It's like Jesus lets them in on the true behind the scenes story. And this is clear doctrine all throughout the scripture. You don't have to turn there. It's on the screen behind me. And in front of you, Ephesians chapter one, verses four through six. I've helped a little bit with the pronouns here. He, God, 
chose in Greek eklego, which is the exact same word that Jesus uses in verse 16 of chapter 15, that he chose us. God chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, before God. In love, it was God who predestined us for adoption as sons, ladies, as daughters, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his, God's will, to the praise of his, God's glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved who is Christ. Oh, don't miss this. Before creation even began, before time even began, before he even spoke the world ex nihilo, out of nothing into everything, he chose you to be blameless. He chose you to be holy. He chose you, listen, to be his. That's amazing. He chose you before he even created you, but is he God enough to know who you're going to be after he chose you? Absolutely. He chose you knowing that you'd make mistakes. He, he chose you even with all of your faults. He chose you with all of your, all of your sin even. He still chose you. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. It's a good thing God chose me before I was born because he surely would not have afterwards. <laughs> I feel that quote. John 6, you can turn there if you want to. It's about four or five pages back to your left. John chapter 6, verse 37 Jesus is talking. Look, look at the power of this. John 6, 37. All, operative word, all, that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. All that, the, let me just say that again, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So college student, when you were seven, eight, nine years old and you gave your life to Christ, that was actually because God gave your life to Jesus first. Those who believed on Christ two weeks ago, and it kind of felt like your choice, it is a good thing that you said yes to Christ because the Father had already said yes to Jesus about you. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. Here's a picture of the gospel. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he, God, has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. If you want to, go back to John 15. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Why did I choose you? I chose you to appoint you that you should go and bear much fruit. He appointed you. Uh, in, in Greek, it's, it's a tithumi. And tithumi means, means, it's a construction term. It means to set a column deep into the ground. Or it's an engineering term. To, to set the, a column deep into the ground so that a building might be built on top of it. So it means to, to, be, to be purposed, to sink a column to the ground. It means something is set, something is secure. And so here's what Jesus said. I chose you. You did not choose me. And when I chose you, I set you. I secured you. I sunk you into the ground like a column to do what? To bear fruit. So if you're here today, Christian, you're going, what's my purpose in life? Why am I here? Why has God set me here? Here's your answer. He purposed you. He set you. He sunk you like a column into the ground to bear fruit. What is bearing fruit? Here's a, a quick answer we gave you a few weeks ago. Bearing fruit is God's character and presence in you seen externally. It's the character of God in you. 
his humility, his love, his peace, his joy, his gentleness in your life being seen by others. It's the power of your God, of God in you, seen by others. It's your confidence. It's your courage. It's the victory that you live in. What is that? That's the power of God in you, seen externally by others. What else is in you? The mission of God. What's the mission of God? To glorify Christ. To take the good news to Waco and the world. That that mission of God in you is seen externally by others. That's what it means to bear fruit. God's character, his presence in you, seen by others. And I want you to hear this. He did not appoint you to be busy. He appointed you to be fruitful. You need to come to the end of every single day of yours and ask yourself, was I busy today or was I fruitful today? You need to come to the end of every week and say, was I busy this week? Was I fruitful this week? The end of every year, was I, was I busy this year? Was I fruitful this year? Because really you're going to come to the end of life and you need to ask yourself, that's the end goal really of life. Is, is not, hear me say this, the end goal of life is not busyness, it's fruitfulness. The expression of God in you seen by others. And look how, look how sweet this is. Jesus calls us into relationship and into purpose. The two things we search for in life. Everyone in this house, everyone watching online, it's what we strive for. We, we spend a lot of time looking for relationship and looking for purpose. And look how good God is here. In Christ Jesus, he calls us into relationship. He calls us into purpose. First of all, he calls us into relationship. He's the Lord, and we're his friend. We saw that in verse 14, verse 15. We saw back in verse 5 earlier in this, in this, in this uh, series. He is divine. We are the branches. How about this? We are the requester, and he's the grantor. Look at verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We see at the end of verse 16 as well, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This is a type of relationship that Jesus is calling us into that we can come before him and make our request and God is the grantor of those requests. He chose us. We saw this already in verse, verse 16. He chose us for a relationship. But he also chose us for purpose. What's the purpose? To bear fruit. Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. He, he chose us for this purpose, to bear fruit. We saw it already in verse 16. I chose you, I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that, that fruit shall abide, or should abide, or it should last, it should be eternal. That's our purpose, Christian. To bear fruit, our purpose also is to love other people. We see this in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. We also see at the very last sentence of our passage, these things I command you so that you will love one another. That's the purpose for our lives, to bear fruit, to love one another. And here's the third and last purpose for our lives, to live a life of joy. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Relationship and purpose is what humanity is striving for all the time. And Jesus has already given it to us. Jesus is not asking you, inviting you into some cold, legalistic religion. He has invited you to live in his joy. He's not asking you to somehow produce results 
on your own. That he has invited you to be a branch and that he as the true vine might bear that fruit through your life. Hear me again. Jesus is not asking you to be busy. He's asking you to abide in him. To abide in his word. To abide in his joy. To abide in his love. Would you stand with me please and let me read John 15, 5 to you. Reminder of the crux of this passage. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you've been here the last five weeks, you probably have realized we have sung the exact same song at the end of all the sermons. We have done that very purposely. Because we want this to be your car song, your shower song, your walking down the hallway song, your song when you meet with the Lord. Because this song, Abide With Me, is really just a prayer set to music. Our great hope is that you will use this song, even again this week, just to speak to the Lord, because it is an intimate song. God, abide with me. Jesus, Son of God, abide with me. You offer a love that will never let me go. If abiding was up to our faithfulness, woe be to us all. But abiding and him abiding in us is founded and grounded in God's faithfulness toward his daughters and toward his sons. So let us sing this with joy, but may this also be the passionate cry of our hearts. Jesus, abide with us.